Welcome to episode 17 of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I am your host, Gavin McClurg, where it is my job to distill knowledge and excellence from the greatest pilots in the world and pass it on to you so you can be a safer, better pilot. Uh, before we get into today's show with the legendary Will Gad, I wanted to remind you all that I'm still taking questions for an upcoming in-between in episode. Uh, since launching the Mayhem podcast, I've been getting more and more questions via Facebook and email and that kind of thing. And I thought it'd be fun to uh, turn it into a podcast on its own. So if you're curious about anything that you think I can answer, whether it be sponsorship or ex-alps or filmmaking or cross-country or anything technical or mental when it comes to flying, uh, please ask away. Uh, Hit me up via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram or the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com, and we'll get it lined up in the show. Uh, thank you, as always, for your generous donations and listening. Our last show with Cody Matank uh, was a huge hit. God, this one, our numbers went way up. Uh, seemed like people really enjoyed it, so I'll keep that in mind for the future. Uh, if you haven't listened to that one or any of the previous shows, I highly implore you to go back and check them out. Some great information there from guys like Josh Cohn and Mad Syndergaard, Tom Dorlado, Paul Guschelbauer, and many more. So check those out. Also wanted to thank you for your great... Uh, reviews on stitcher and itunes that really helps us get this out so thank you so much for your time there i really appreciate it okay right before we get to the conversation just one quick apology for the sound quality in this one um a few minutes into the conversation for whatever reason i've got this all all this brand new great audio gear it's been working really well but for some reason something went wrong in the conversation with will so i had to revert to the backup which is this app that i use it's what npr everybody uses for skype conversation it's pretty good, but it does. it's not as good as having a great microphone, so there is kind of a background hum here, and there's some funny edits that it makes you do where it kind of clips part of the conversation. I done, I've done my best to put it back together. Hopefully, you won't even notice, um, but I do want to just apologize that I am trying to make these better. I realize I've got to put out good sound uh, for you to be able to listen, and uh, but it is what it is. Hopefully, you won't notice, but I, again, I apologize. And now, uh, Will Gad. My God, where do I begin? Uh, Will was, of course, my partner for the Rockies Traverse back in late 2014. I hadn't met him until the day before the expedition, and that next 30 days that I spent with him really changed my life and my view of the world and how I pilot a paraglider uh, and how I think about risk and safety, and you're going to get all of that condensed into a 60-minute version here, I promise you. This is just a truly amazing uh, episode. He is still at the age of 48. He's been a Red Bull original gangster. He's still uh, one of the best, if not the best, mixed climbers in the world, world-class kayaker, of course, world-class paraglider. He held the distance record in the world for more than 10 years. We get into how he approached uh, those records and state records, uh, what he learned from doing those, where he went wrong in the ex-Alps. Uh, he's a blogger, journalist, public speaker, uh, the, the father of two beautiful kids. Uh, this guy just knows how to get it done. In this uh, episode, we really get inside Will's head about what he thinks about safety and risk and sending it and technique. We hear about creating useful tools to break things down, which leads to justified confidence instead of careless optimism, how to get rid of fears, what's so special about paragliding, recognizing the dark side of dangerous sports, why our desire to see things as we want instead of how they are leads to accidents, and by far, this we got the best answer yet to the Pearly Gates question. Uh, I've been sending that out to a lot of guys in the past. I think you're going to really enjoy this. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Will Gad. Gad, it is awesome to have you on the show. I think we've been working at this for almost a year. Uh, good to finally sit down with you, even though we're uh, not together. You're in, in Canmore, I assume. Is that correct? Yeah. Where, are you in Sun Valley or where are you? Yeah, I'm in Sun Valley. Just got home a couple days ago. Nice. Looked like you're having some good adventures as usual. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun winter, man. We're having a banner snow year, and I was just out in the desert training some acro over the dirt with uh, Cody, which was pretty interesting got my got my laundry out a few times for the first time ever 
<laughs> Battle wounds, man. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. I I decided after the X Alps that uh, I needed to get a little more serious about my my acro skills. Yeah, well, you're, you're basically he, he, flying acro all the way across the Alps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was that was that the video of Cody where he was doing a double reserve, or was that that was somebody else? Or no, that was somebody else. Yeah, no, that was just something I found online. Wasn't that hysterical? Yeah, I, I guess it's hysterical because it all worked out well. But yeah, that was not a good day. No, exactly. I think, <laughs> I think the title of it was Maldia. Yeah, no, that was that was not a good day. Um, yeah. Hey, so for our listeners who don't uh, know your history, uh, I'd love for you to just give us a quick background of how you got into this uh, crazy sport that we're so passionate about and, uh, and tell me a little bit about how that got you to where you are today. Yeah, it's going back a ways, but I was working as a reporter in Colorado writing about different sporting events and stuff like that, and I went up and covered the U.S. Nationals in Aspen, Colorado, and I think it was like 91, 92, somewhere in there, and um, went up there, and I was just blown away. I was like, this is a really cool mountain sport, and I already did all the other mountain sports, you know, from skiing, you know, skiing, kayaking, mountain running, all of that. And a lot of my friends had gotten into paragliding, which is one of the reasons I went up there, Dave Bridges and all these you know, really good pilots of that era. And um, I watched the event and I was like, this is really great. I've got to try it. So I went for a tandem with John Yates and scared the shit out of myself and him. And, and it's been downhill or uphill, depending on how you look at it, ever since. And uh, so 91, that is quite a lengthy career. Have you ever had an accident? Um, I've had a few pretty hard landings and I've had a lot of situations where it could have been a bad accident for sure, but um, nothing too traumatic. I've strained my thumb, but I've had some situations which were ridiculous, and it was only by relatively good luck and gymnastics training maybe that I walked away from it. <laughs> you you have a, a principle that I want to get into here in a bit. Um, when we were walking up to the, the first launch the very first day, uh, the Rockies Traverse, uh, you had me pegged pretty cl- uh, quickly <laughs> as a pathological optimist and you said yeah. you know, you're the kind of guy that looks for the rock that's going to break the glass I've been using that joke by the way at every BAMF uh, stop thank you for that one but um, flush that out for me a little bit because you know when you say you know you've had a couple minor things and you've had some luck but I also you know you've you've talked about this and for the listener if you're not familiar with will and his writing i would highly encourage you to check out his website willgad.com um i've been following your writings for years and years and years you have great things to say about all of this stuff uh, the more than we can say on the podcast but um flush that that kind of very that that difference of you know looking for what can go wrong versus hoping everything's going to be right and how that has allowed you to uh pursue what you have, uh, ice climbing, you know, relatively dangerous sports for a long time, relatively injury-free. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody is involved in any of these mountain sports is kind of an optimist to begin with. I'm going to fly off this mountain and it's all going to work out. Like you're, you're in a pretty optimistic place to begin with, or I do a lot of ice climbing. I'm going to climb this frozen waterfall and everything's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, you're starting off from a pretty high, you know, it's an act of optimism no matter how you look at it to, to just do something like that. And I think right now in our society, there's this heavy emphasis on the positive power of positive thinking. And I think this is bullshit. It's just going to get you killed. So what I'm quite into is is being an optimist just by doing these sports and and getting up and doing battle with life every day, you're an optimist. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a, how to, in my view, a useful tool for surviving these sports or or anything dangerous in life that you want to do a new business, whatever, is trying to figure out what can go wrong and why, and using your imagination to break it down into chunks, and then solving those chunks, and then when you go out and do something in life, you've got justified confidence not just this sort of YouTube style belief that I could do it, you know, and YouTube has a lot of videos of people who really thought they could do it on there. And you don't want to be that guy. You want to be the guy that's like, all right, I'm going to do something that is, is cool and dangerous and out there, but I'm going to break every little chunk down and I'm going to use the best tool I have at my disposal, which is my imagination, to, to figure out in, in sometimes gruesome detail everything that you think can go wrong and why and work through that. 
And what that allows me to do is get rid of my major fears. And, and then I'm, when I'm standing on launch and, you know, it's a bit surly and it's going to be real, I, I, do, I still do that same thing even after 20 years of flying. I like break it down. All right, what's the issues here? Can I deal with them or not? And then if I'm still afraid, I pack it up and go home. I run away a lot. But I'm into the positive power and negative thinking, and it served me really well for a long time. I like that. I like that a lot. You had a, an incident uh, in the X-Alps in 2003. I wondered if you could um, re- recount that because I think that was one of those times where um, you know, you you had to eliminate or greatly re- reduce your margin uh, for safety, and, and you ended up really not liking that race because of that. Can you go through that flight, I think, from, from the Chamonix day? Uh, yeah, I had, I mean, I had a few incidents in the X-Alps. I think anybody who does that race is, uh, is, is going to have incidents. That's, if, you're, if you're trying to fly in the X-Alps, you're going to have incidents. Even, I don't care who you are, I, I, pretty much everybody has adventures in that race. But yeah, on that race, I, I launched, um, you know, it was a, I was in the lee of Mount Blanc and that was okay, but I got destroyed a few times when I climbed out of the lee, which was sort of okay because I was high. Um, but that that made for an interesting morning. <laughs> and then in the afternoon, I got a, I just totally, I got sort of blown by the wind that was coming over Mount Blanc and down into the Aosta Valley. And that valley, that's ah, just not where you want to be. It's full of high tension lines and you know power lines and dams and cities and it's just mayhem in there and and. I, I was flying along going 40 or 50K thinking this is great, kind of ridge soaring a bit. And then I looked down and like 100 meters below me, all the trees were just bent over. And, and at that time in my career, I didn't have as much experience with really strong valley winds because we don't get them to the same degree in the Rockies and most other places I fly. And I was like, yeah, there'll be a valley wind, but you know, 20, 30K, whatever, it's the end of the day, it'll be fine. And I landed in this thing, or I, go, I, went, I went into this wind and started going backwards up the valley at a pretty incredible rate of speed. And, and dodging power lines and eventually I managed to sort of crash beside this sewer plant and um, it was like I was fine with crashing into the sewer pond to be honest that would have been sure. a better option at that point that would have been great yeah sure sure <laughs> like you've been there you know your trip I think you tried to crash into a, into a pond I did. I did I yeah. did I didn't make it though <laughs> yeah, I did not know but I, I stacked it into this it was a couple of minutes just really horrifying going backwards up a valley with power lines everywhere. I didn't feel like I'd been pushing it hard that day and, and it was way out of control and you know, I could have easily been been killed and I, I landed on the grass and kind of rolled down the hillside and I think the guy who ran the sewer plant watched all this and you know, he, I mean, he wasn't a pilot but it was obviously a pretty traumatic situation with the wing balling up left, right and center and recovering it and then landing and you know, just timing of surges and collapses it was just luck and i and i a little, a little you know obviously some skill i didn't stall the wing or or lose it but yeah I crashed there the guy gave me a beard i sat on the grass and realized that not only did i have some things to learn about flying in the alps but also for me competing in that style of competition was leading me to make some bad decisions so i, I needed to modify that and you, you did fly comps for a long time, uh, won nationals, uh, flew PWCs, uh, and I, I want to also talk about your your kind of record era. You went out to uh, break a bunch of state records. Many of them still hold uh, your Texas record, which was the distance oh. record in North America held until last year, and you were flying in a seat, you know, <laughs> in your seat harness, <laughs> and I don't know what kind of wing you were on back then, a Firebird or something, I assume. Um, always, always jaded Robbie Whittle designs. Okay, but, uh, gotcha, yeah. Um, what what led you to that, and how does that mesh with your kind of um, your approach to to risk? You you said you you know when you when you approach things now in the mountains, you know it's a it's it's a collection of skills and understanding the environment and the ability to and the you know the knowledge of when to walk, walk away. Um, what got you going down the the record um, <clears throat> the record momentum? Uh, what was the what was the perp? Why'd you do it? And uh, and what'd you learn from it? Well, I think for me in life doing interesting things is about as good as it gets. Like if I'm fired up and interested in something, that's where I, I feel like I often operate the best. It's like, all right, let's go do something really cool here. And and I love doing that, whether it's paragliding or ice climbing or whatever I'm involved with, first descents of a river, or it's just, this is going to be interesting and I'm a happier person when I'm in that environment. 
so with records and paragliding, I was like, how far can we fly? And that was really interesting. That was what it was all about. I didn't really care too much about the, the record per se, but it was like, let's go fly really, really far. And, and that was awesome. It was trying to figure that out. And I, I started doing that and right away in my career. I mean, in the early to mid nineties, it was always, can we fly over the next mountain range? And yeah, our, our gear was by today's standards, pretty primitive, but it's the same thing. It's like, get up high, go on glide. How far can you get? And, and a lot of the things I did that people are like, oh, you were the first to do that or the first to do, do that. I didn't really think about being the first. I just thought it was like, let's go fly somewhere cool. And this is going to be great. And, and then, do the, then do the negative thing and, and figure it all out and try and try and be positive and, and learn and learn and learn and learn. And when I almost got bitten off, you know, understand why and apply those lessons, I, I really spend a lot of time thinking about flying and analyzing it and breaking it down. But, uh, yeah, and, and the record thing just grew out of that. It's like, where can we fly the farthest possible distance in North America? And I started looking at where the sailplanes were doing their records and the hang glider pilots were doing their records. And, and it was pretty obvious that somewhere in the sort of southwestern, south, sort of south-central west area of, of the United States. And then, yeah, I spent three or four years with Josh Cohn and a bunch of other good pilots chasing records in Hobbs, New Mexico, which is a fantastic place to do it. And then... Gary Osabo came up with uh, with Zapata, Texas, which is full on flying. And then, yeah, next thing you know, it's it's late in the evening, and you're looking at a world record. Life is good. <laughs> it's, right it's, on. It's, it's did did you through all those years, Will? And then and then I I, I think your a lot of the comp flying was both before and after that. But were there any kind of aha moments along the way, or or um, you know, was it was it a, a quite a rapid ascent into flying far and getting good really quick in the beginning or were there things you had to kind of back up into or uh were there were there uh did you ever have to tackle kind of areas of progression um along the way well i i I was pretty obsessed with flying i'd come out of a career as a competition climber and i'd had a really good career as a a competition sport climber but i i wanted something different and paragliding was that and when and the first time i flew you know I, i basically quit competition climbing right then and there and uh, and I got stoked, and I flew every day that I could, and and I was obsessed with it, and and that's what I wanted to do. If I couldn't fly, I'd go ground handle in ridiculous conditions, and and I learned something every single day, and I I, I progressed not because I'm any good as a pilot, but because I I am quite good at going at it as hard as I can and as learning as much as I can day after day after day. And I mean, that first year I spent New Year's Eve flying at the point of the mountain with Steve Merritt at midnight just because it turned on and we're like, dude, we got to go. We weren't even, I don't think we even had anything at all to drink. We were just so stoked to go flying. And I flew every day in the winter, even though there wasn't a thermal to be seen anywhere. And, you know, living in Boulder, Colorado, and if it was like any hope of, of turning a circle, I was out there on the hill. And there were a bunch of pilots like that, and they had the same mentality. And we were not competitive. We were very supportive of each other and, you know, trying not to get killed because it, it still is a risky sport. And, and we were washed out for each other. But it was it was hardcore about who was in the air at the end of the day. <laughs> you know, you, you milk everything out of the day. There are a bunch of guys who went at it with that attitude. And being surrounded with people who structured life so they could fly pretty much every day and were good at it and were motivated to max it out. It's like, who can go farther? And man, you, you went. And it was never a discussion about whether or not to go cross country. It was like somebody was going and and – it was like, okay, who can do the coolest thing with the day? It wasn't a competition like beating everybody else, but it was like trying to do the coolest thing you could with the day and and stay in the air the longest and go the farthest. And that really structured my attitude toward toward paragliding. It's like you, you do the mo- most with what you've got. And it wasn't – I don't think I got any good at these things because I was talented at them, but I, I did obsess about them and, and restructure my life pretty radically so that I could go fly. At, at nearly every oper- every possible opportunity. And your stoke after all these years is still really high. I mean, I know you're a lot more versatile than I am. You get pretty passionate about ice climbing and climbing and guiding and other things as well. But um, what has kept you so excited about uh, what we're doing after all these years? Well, paragliding is a complicated sport. Just when you think, yeah, I've kind of got this figured out, you learn something new. 
you know, I got I got waved the other day and, and wound up at a ridiculous altitude above the Rockies. And it's like, how does that happen after 20 some years of flying, you know, on a day that I didn't think there were any significant winds aloft that I get waved and I get beamed out of my local valley here. And I'm like, I'm on the moon. I'm, 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 I'm a hazard. Things like that in paragliding, it's just intensely interesting on a small scale. Like why are the thermals here today? What's going on with that? What, how does it work? And on a big scale, why am I getting beamed out and, and what's going on with that? And it's just, it's endlessly complicated. And I think that's the real reward of, of paragliding is solving these intensely complicated questions and, and understanding them. And there's always unknown unknowns in paragliding, things you just didn't know you didn't know. <laughs> and, and that makes it that makes it engaging in a way that very few sports are to me. It's always the mountain sports that have some of that. But paragliding has got more of it than others for sure. So, yeah, I'm fired up That's, to go flag. My, my next question was why is it worth the risk? And you've, you've just answered that. So so nicely done. You, you don't even need to answer that one. <laughs> should look at though I think everybody who flies should have an answer to that question of why it's worth the risk and the answer shouldn't be well I can be safer than anybody else because you know everybody makes mistakes and errors and and in paragliding those those errors are, are certainly likely to to put you in the hospital or, or kill you so you, you, you got to have an answer to that question I think that's a that's a really good question everybody's answer is going to be different it's not like one size fits all but asking that question for me, helps me make better decisions about about what I'm doing, not only in paragliding, but in ice climbing or mountaineering or guiding or whatever I'm doing. Well, answer it for me then. How 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 do you perceive that these days? Well, it's different than when I was younger. I think when I was younger, it was simply this is the coolest thing ever, and I'm going to go do it. And I I was broadly okay with dying doing it. That's how it works. And I think that's not a bad state to be in actually that's if you're especially as like a young guy you gotta or, you know there's you're gonna either turn to a life of crime or do really cool things it's like, <laughs> so true. You're not get it like you're not gonna get it trying to fit into a cubicle like I'm not gonna fit into an average workday environment other people are and that is awesome and I'm not trying to denigrate their experience at all but for me that's not gonna work so I need more positive things to do with my life and, and, and paragliding certainly fits into that and so does climbing and, and they're beautiful and wonderful but it has changed. I, I look at the days differently now than I did when I was, when I was younger and I'm not willing to take the same level of, of risk and I do recognize that all of these sports you know, can, can and, and may ultimately kill me and I'm, and I'm still okay with that. It's, it's who I am and how, how I look at the world but I've, I've definitely backed down my tolerances for risk on, on any given day a fair amount over what it was in my 20s and, and 30s. It's, uh, today's a good day to, today's always a good day to, to come back and that's how I approach every day I do any of these sports. It's like all of these sports are very dangerous but today is a good day to do them right and make good decisions. I want to be back at the dinner table tonight and, and that's helped me work with them but they're magic. You know, in, in total these sports um, are are wonderful, and and I believe that they're magic. But they also have a very dark side, and and uh, you have to also recognize that and and be in touch with it, and realize that accidents can and will happen to to me, to you, to anybody who who does these sports, and and then make better decisions as a result. So, in in total, it's it's worth it. But no one day is is worth getting getting destroyed for you know I walk down a lot from my local site if it's not really on or I just can't figure it out nothing makes sense I don't become the human probe and huck myself out there I'm like right I don't get it today's a good day to have had a great hike and I'll go rock climbing and, and back it down but uh yeah. well talk to me about um contentment you you had this enormous year last year you climbed Helmkin Falls that thing beat the shit out of you guys but you pulled it yeah. off you climbed you we did the Rockies Traverse together uh you went and climbed the last ice on Kilimanjaro and then you polished it off by, by climbing the spray ice at Niagara by any standard a lifetime in a year uh just amazing one of the things that I battle with sometimes is you get done with something like that and the need, the desire for for the next 
it's just what are you going to do next? Uh, you know, because the highs from those uh, endeavors, you know, the planning and pulling it off and uh, and being fit enough to do it is is super, at least for me, super addictive. It, are, do you do you deal with a lot of kind of coming down from that, or how will you maintain um, contentment? I don't want, I don't like the word happiness, but how will you maintain this level of contentment as as the years when you look ahead into your future i think you need different things at different points in your life you know that was an amazing year and and from a sheer accomplishment perspective i'm i'm probably unlikely to ever have a year like that again <laughs> that's okay you know i i had a i had a fantastic year i've had some other years where i, where I tried really hard and just nothing worked right. You know, I went to the Himalaya and if I'd done that route, maybe I would have won a, a big award for it or just been totally satisfied with doing the, the coolest route in, in my view that was yet to be done in the Himalaya. I didn't get it anywhere near getting up, but I got beat down for two months. The same year I tried to do a big paddling trip that went nowhere. I mean, I just got, I, I went to Texas. I got nowhere flying. It was like, you get beat down, you get beat down, you get beat down. And, and, Hey, you know, and then some years it's like that year everything just went right, and and it was a great year. But it, it, it you know, the you you just can't live at that level over and over and over again. And, and trying to live there probably isn't that healthy. Maybe um, you know, the, the last year I've done a whole lot of teaching and and traveling and talking and sharing stories with people, and that's been very very rewarding and successful in, in other ways so I don't think I need something to look forward to where it's like yeah that's gonna be cool and um, a few of those things didn't work last year I was I was supposed to do a, a couple of trips that just didn't work out for one reason or another and and uh, got some things on deck now going forward that should be pretty neat and I'm fired up on but you, you just got to be where you are and get up and keep going forward and you know there's nothing's guaranteed in life I'm I I have zero financial backing from family or anything like that. You know, this is, I've spent a lot of my life washing dishes and pounding nails. <laughs> and every time I get to do one of these trips, I'm like, man, I won. This is great. And, and, uh, and there'll be more, I guess. But yeah, I think if you're always living, living, you got to have a future goal. Like this would be cool to go and do this, but just be where you are too. And, you know, today I'm going to go for, go for a good Nordic ski and huck along and that's going to be cool. And then I'm going to hit the climbing gym later and that's going to be cool and trade there for an hour. And then, you know, tonight a few friends and I are going to get together and that's going to be a pretty great day. <laughs> <I'm psyched laughs> that works. That. Yeah. yeah cool. I'm going to get a bunch of work and my kids are going to do some fun things and I'm going to take them skiing tonight too. And that's going to be cool. And like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you need to always like, being rad is very hard work. I think and, and the hardest person to be rad for is yourself, right? Like nobody else ultimately really gives a shit. In 50 years, nobody is going to care what we did. Probably only be 50 years. It'll be like next week. It'll be like, who? What? So that shit's all, that's all really transitory. You know, it's, it's like you got to like where you are and be stoked on what you have going on and, and then change it if you don't. I believe that's really, really important is to – create a life that you dig and if you're not digging it then change and I love yeah it. I, love I don't it. know I don't have a great philosophy on this but it sure is good to be alive yeah it sure it it certainly is it certainly is good to be alive um on that note you you've you've lived a very public life um what what's something that that no one knows about you I think I'm probably more of an introvert than most people realize I need to read and slow down and and think and process quite a lot um and uh, and I dig that, you know. I'm 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 kind of a product of the of the punk era where you're you know stuff's life's loud and meant to be lived, and you do it yourself. But you better think about it and try and come up with something that's cool. And and that thinking is really really important. So as an ADD child of the eighties, you know, I got like if I don't do that thinking, my life gets really western and sloppy, and I've got to put it all back together. So that that introverted time is is important in life for. For me, for sure, and, and for all of us. I, you know, I had one thought for you, Gavin. You might get a kick out of this. Uh, you know, on our trip, we were continually problem-solving, right? And we were both quite proud of our problem-solving. We're like, yeah, we're doing this. We're making it up. <laughs> and I, I was so proud of this for a long time. But I was, I was, I was doing a, a talk or something the other day, and, and I realized midway through my talk, 
that the reason I'm really good at solving problems on the fly, like on-site climbing and paragliding, where's the next thermal, is my whole life's like that. Hmm. And I was like, hmm, maybe it's time to spend a little more time dialing things in. If all you do, if you're really, really good at solving problems, it probably means you create a lot of problems. <laughs> I thought of you, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's us right there. Totally, Gavin. Yeah, that's totally us. You're absolutely right. Um, Are we good at problem solving? Because we live there, you know? So it's, it's interesting, I thought. That Maybe is there. interesting. That is interesting. Um, when we were up at Banff, we were giving a talk after the film, and, and a, an audience member asked a question about sponsorship that I wanted to flesh out a little bit more. Are there any – what what are the benefits and pitfalls of of being a really public persona? Um, you know, your dad told me when we were up there that you've been public since you were born. <laughs> That's a real gift that you have. Um, but are there are there are there pitfalls to to are, are there times where you go, God, you know, I I just want to disappear. Well, I mean, I, first of all, I've hung out with people who actually are famous. You know, I've been to some events and so on where. You're, hanging out with the A-list, like the Vanity Fair Oscar party or whatever, you know, I'm all of a sudden I'm like shoulder to shoulder with John Travolta, right? Things, I've been in those scenes and those people can't walk anywhere, they can't do anything in public, like they're, they're crazy, like that's just a crazy life. So our level of minor celebrity is like, you know, I'm not, I'm in no danger of getting stopped, you know, most places in life, like I'm nobody. So for, I think that's a, you know, there's nothing going on there. As far as, sponsorship and everything else goes the the key distinction for me that's that's helped me to understand where I'm at and, and to keep things um, both ethical and and rewarding is that I get sponsorship to do things I don't do things to get sponsorship hmm. and Good I've seen the careers yeah it's pretty important so if you're like I really want to go climb the last dice on Kilimanjaro and Red Bull has said no you know, I think they said no six times to that project. And then finally I like cobbled together plane tickets from one company and a bit of help from another and, and uh, cobbled this trip together and we went and did it and it turned out to be super successful from a, from what sponsors want, marketing and, and awareness and everything else. Um, but I really, really wanted to do that trip and, and I had, you know, if I had like an unlimited bank account, I would, I would. I wouldn't need sponsorship or anything else. I would just go do this stuff, but I, I don't, you know, I've got like, I gotta, I gotta make it work economically. So I need sponsorship to do things and they need things for me to make it work for them. And, and life's good. But if you're going, right, I'm going to do something cool to get more sponsorship. Then at that point, I think I'm, you know, it, it, it hasn't worked. And then the careers, the moments in my life where I found myself in that situation and, and, and let it kind of get away from me, it, 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 you know pretty quickly that you're bullshitting yourself and 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 not really in the right place mentally. Cool. What is the what's the most common kind of um, you know in, in the years that you've been flying and going to sites and competing? Um, what's the most common? Oh shit! I wish this guy knew X. What what do you see that's the what do you see that leads to most, if not all, of the accidents? Uh, I mean, there's a, I guess there's a variety of ways to look at that, but a, a desire to see things differently than they are. So there's a, there's this really basic Buddhist idea of trying to see things as they are, like what's actually happening, not what you want to happen or you think should happen or you've been told is going to happen, but as it actually is. And we all get to the hill with these preconceptions. It's Saturday, and the forecast has been good, and I'm I'm off work on Saturday, or I don't have to you know talk or do something else. So I'm psyched to be there, and so it's going to be great. And you get there, and it's a bit snarky and a bit messy, and ah, it's going to be great. The forecast is good, and this is the only day I've got to fly. And you launch, and it's like blowing a hoolie, and and you and you go sideways and end up in the trees, and it's like okay, well that didn't work out like I thought it was going to. So in my own career and generally what I see with accidents is people wanting the world to adapt to them rather than adapting to the world and, and seeing what it is. And, and often it isn't the way we want it to be. It's like, it's windier. I'm closer to the hill than I really should be. Well, this is going to be okay. Cause I've taken an SIV course and I'm really good at controlling my wing. And then the asymmetric is quite a lot bigger and well, hello pine trees. <laughs> so, it's it's just it's just it's just and then and then that goes for yourself as well you know like 
I'm not Kriegel. I, I cannot fly my wing backwards in a tail slide 50 feet off the deck with any hope of recovering it. That's not going to work. <laughs> so I might feel pretty good some days. Boy, I'm flying well today. I'm scratching out over here and I'm making it happen. But I don't. I have to be realistic about where my skill levels are and, and what I can do and and, uh, and and not push too hard and to leave a margin. You know, it's I try to always leave a little more room than I think I absolutely need because I'm going to screw it up. Everybody who flies or does any of these sports, we screw it up. Mm-hmm. So you got to have enough margin that you can recover, be that throwing your reserve or big, big banging close to the hillside. And then very rarely, you got to go, right, I feel this is important enough that I'm just going to gamble here. And if you've made that decision, then I've got no sympathy for me or anybody that stacks in. It's not a tragedy. You've made the gamble, and uh, you need to know when you're making that gamble. That's fantastic. Have you ever thrown your reserve? I've never thrown it in anger. I got it out once and put it in my lap. (laughs) (laughs) I might need this. I was really going really bad. It was in, it was in Colorado, and, and I totally screwed up and wound up, wound up in the lee. And I spent about three thousand feet doing tricks, and and um, I, I I decided I was going to throw it when I was close enough that I could see individual pine trees. But I kept recovering the wing. It was like collapse, boom, 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 do some tricks, recover, and finally I was like, I might not have time to grab the handle, so I actually got it out and put it between my legs so that it would be faster to throw if I needed to. <laughs> I love it. But I ended up, so now I've got this reserve between my legs, and I'm like, well, what happens if the reserve falls out from my legs and I fly it around? So eventually I just went and crashed into some bushes, basically. It, was a long it actually happened twice, but it only got my reserve out once. And it, it's amazing the human mind, you know. I fall out of the sky for like thousands of feet, and then I had to go do it again to understand how strong the lee could really be in the Rockies on a windy day. <laughs> yeah. We're all at least me. I, mean, I, I should have learned from that. It took me at least twice, maybe three times, to learn that one. Actually, yeah, that Lee, as you know, <laughs> I'm quite fond of yeah. it. Um, yeah, the, you're good at it. <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe, like you said, lucky again and again. Um, it, tell me about you had you had a really interesting hypoxic experience in Wave uh, in your old home hometown of Boulder. Uh, yeah, can you recount that? I love that story. I'll try to cover the microphone so I don't laugh. Yeah, no, it's all good. But I no, I launched in Boulder, Colorado, and I was actually flying in Golden, which is my home site in many ways, and um, not Golden, BC, but but Golden, Colorado, right outside of Denver. Mm-hmm. And and it's a good day there if you can get to like you know if you get to like nine thousand feet, it's a good solid day. You can go places and do things. The ground's at about six thousand feet, so you're you know. Occasionally there you go to like 10 or 11 and you're specked out and it's like this is awesome and on a really really good day there you might go to 14 like once a generation you'll go to 14 there maybe. Yeah, I I basically ended up in the lee of the Rockies, probably a combination of mostly wave there too and uh ended up going quite a lot higher than that and watching jets go by me and below me and things like that. There's a there's a yeah, a couple couple bits of airspace there that came pretty close to getting involved and <laughs> Yeah, and the, it was not a good day. Um, and I and I'm and I'm still making pretty good. De- I think I was making decent decisions. I'm like normally there, you just fly straight for a bit. You get out of the thermal, you're done. But I think I got high enough to, and that was the, the first time, second time I'd ever been in any kind of wave. Basically, I got into the wave, and I'm so I'm flying down the front side of the Rockies, um, parallel with the Rockies, assuming that I'm going to hit big sink at any time, and I'm not, and I'm still going up and. Now I'm getting really high and starting to get pretty hypoxic because I'm not well acclimated and don't have oxygen and um, end up trying to kind of breathe really hard to compensate for that. And you get into this really fun feedback loop, which is if you've ever been at altitude trying to sleep, is the same thing with chain stoke breathing. You you hy- basically hyperventilate, end up with too much carbon dioxide, blow off too much carbon dioxide and, and you end up with alkaline blood and it, you end up in this crazy cycle where you there's really – it's very hard to break that cycle. And uh, so I'm losing my vision, seeing out of the pinholes, and I'm trying to decide if I should throw my reserve now. But I'm like, well, if I throw it now and I'm still in the wave, I could go to like 40,000, you know, you could go really high there. That would be bad. And I'm like, well, but if I don't throw my reserve and I don't wake up before I hit the ground, <laughs> you know, gets and as I'm pondering all of this, I'm, I'm getting higher and higher and, and it's not so cool. And, uh, my vision is now down to literally like pinholes. I'm seeing one pinhole, wow. and and I'm like, all right. So 
one of the things I found pretty critical in anything I do is when it when things get really wild, you've got to get rid of everything else and 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 just focus. And so, and I can do that pretty intellectually after years of doing this. I'm like, all right, the key things here are to head north because sooner or later I'm going to get out of this and there's less people to the north so I've got better options of not getting hit by a jet or if I do go really sideways I'll probably land in like a field or something and not a set of high tension lines so I get out of the airspace so I'm going to keep the glider pointed north and I can tell that where that is by where the sun is because I can't really see anything and I couldn't move my hands anymore and I couldn't move my legs anymore because my blood's all messed up and I'm very very hypoxic and everything else so I put the brakes through my elbows um, so I could still control the glider some. So I'm controlling the glider using just my elbows because I couldn't. You're doing the hands. Jesus Christ pose. Yeah, I'm. 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 I'm yeah, only I, only my arms have to be tucked in because I can't. My shoulders can't go out to the side. So I'm like flying the glider with my elbows over my head, <laughs> in the pod, and it's cold, right? I'm really high, so it's really cold. So I'm like I'm getting covered up in some. My face is just frozen and. Anyhow, I'm, I keep flying the glider. I don't pass out. I just I'm looking at the world through the pinhole for a while, and 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 really focused on just flying the glider north and keeping the glider open, which I'm not totally doing very well. But you know, I get I fall out of the sky for a bit, get reoriented. Task is go north, so I would. And uh, finally, after a long time, I flew. I forget how far it was, but I don't know, 100k or something like that. And I end up landing way out in the middle of nowhere, and I get lower. My vision comes back, and I get it all sorted out. And I go out there and land, and I'm like, "Wow, that really sucked." You know, it's, that's how am I going to not have that happen in the future? And pondering all of this, and I pack up my glider, and it's super hot on the ground. It's about 105 degrees or so. And um, I start hitchhiking, which is what you do. And it took me a long time to pack up my glider. It probably took me an hour. I was just totally brain dead. And stored all this out and um, pack up my pack up my glider, start standing beside the road hitchhiking. And I'm standing there and I'm like, um, you know, why is nobody picking me up? It's like, yeah, I'm not the best looking guy, but come on. Nobody is even like, everybody's swerving to get around me on the road. I'm like, what is wrong with all these people? This is the most unfriendly people I've ever met. At which point my hands are starting to thaw out and I'm starting to kind of like get back with the program. And I realize that I'm still wearing a black balaclava. So I'm standing out there at 105 feet. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, Hello, I'm a serial <laughs> killer. Pick me up. Yeah, I have a big bag on my pack that probably has a body in it. Like nobody's going to pick me up. <laughs> Interesting that I spoke at a hypoxia conference. So this is all the people who like deal with hypoxia professionally, mainly in medical settings for – surgery patients and other people with compromised lung function and so on. I spoke at this conference and I told all my hypoxia tales and there's a bunch of them. And my question to the audience was how much smarter would I be if I hadn't have had all these experiences? And, and the, the general consensus was about 10 to 15 IQ points over it all. So, Are you serious? Yeah, Whoa. Like, yeah, Holy yeah, shit. <laughs> so I didn't, th- <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I wasn't that really to begin with, but I, uh, you know, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty interesting, but they also said that I could probably rewire my brain in other ways as as I you know as I aged and I and I was still young enough to maybe get away with it. But it was an interesting thing to know that I was damaging myself. <laughs> that is that is really wild. Holy cow! Ten to, 10 to fifteen points. That'd be substantial on me, man. <laughs> Dude, I could be, I could have been way smarter than this. Like God, I could have been something. But anyhow, it was a. Uh, it was it was a it was a realization. So yeah, don't don't get waved. And if you do, um, you know, you got to turn and fly away from the wave. Flying in line with the wave was not a winning strategy. But I, I couldn't turn out and go that way because the Denver airport airspace was right there. I basically had to pick a direction and fly it, and then I didn't have enough brain power left to make any more decisions at that point. <laughs> in, in that in that vein, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Do you have kind of a standout flight in your twenty something years of flying? Do you have one that's just that was the one? You know, I I I love going flying. Like so many flights I've had are, are just great, great memories. You know, the flight we did, um, our final really big flight there was mm-hmm. was awesome. Our flight on the final day where we just scraped how far did we go? Thirty K or something yeah, and we felt like we like amazing. Yeah, we felt like we'd won, and that was it was late in the year, it barely worked, you know. And so I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any one. It's just the experience of flying for all these years and getting to see the world. That's what I love as much as anything is getting up high in a paraglider and seeing the rivers I paddle and the mountains I climb and just getting to see it all laid out on a on a on a pretty slow speed event. Like I fly over these mountains and jets all the time, and it just zaps by, and there you are. You're at the place you're going, and you haven't really seen it, but on a paraglider. 
you see it and you know it, you know. And I never really understood the the scope of the U.S. until I flew across it on a on a paramotor way back in the day. You know, we took like thirty some days to fly across the U.S. and I've got an idea of what it looks like all the way from Ventura, California to Kitty Hawk. Um, you know, the the whole trip and and that's that's the thing that any flight like that, you know, that first flight when I remember the ninety four Canadian Nationals flying from Golden BC down to Radium, it took me eleven hours. So my average speed was like eight kilometers an hour, right? <laughs> but <laughs> that was one of the best flights ever because I remember William Mueller is like it was my first flight with a Vario, I think, and he was like, When it beeps turn and I took that advice literally. <laughs> and <laughs> Eight kilometers an hour, like, but I flew like 90k, and I was like, I was so pumped, man. I was, uh, you know, I was just so. It's beeping, I'll turn. It's beeping, I'll turn. I'll, it's... Yeah, I make it beep. I'm sure half the time I was turning, I was going down on in the net effect. But how great was that? Like, it was an awesome flight, and uh, it was it was great. So I don't know. I just like going flying. I don't think so many good flights. The world record flight, you know, that was a pretty cool flight because we tried and tried and tried and fought so hard for those flights and then to finally have it happen and realize that I was like on glide to a world record. That's, that's like, that's all I really wanted was to fly as far or farther than, you know, anybody thought possible at that time. So I don't know. Paragliding is great. Flying at midnight with Steve Mayer on New Year's Eve in the air. We spent New Year's Eve in a snowstorm at the point of the mountain getting blown backwards and it was great. So, <laughs> <laughs> Those early flights with Chris Atacroce and the that whole team of guys, and I don't know, it's been a great ride. I really, really enjoyed paragliding, and I got a few goals for the summer to to get out and chase. And I wish you the best of luck on your flight. I, I gave you a good reference to Mads. Yeah, he, he we just, called. just just skyping with Mads this morning. He wanted to say hello. He's he's pretty excited. That's going to be uh, that's something I've been dreaming about for years. You know, that's uh, going to be exciting. Sure. Yeah. All the questions you've asked me, I should ask you. We could. I'll turn it around when I get back. <laughs> One of these days. Well, it might take us another six, seven, eight months to to come together on that. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck with that. I think that'll be a really, really cool. So, isn't the X Alps happening this summer? Or is that next summer? Next summer. Next summer. Yes. Yeah. So I'm on kind of a maintenance program right now. Uh, uh, ben calls it Gavin's plan to not go backwards, and then. Uh, picking up in October this next this next fall I'll get into the meat of the, the hard training again and yeah and try to do it again before I get too old <laughs> <laughs> well who was some guy who was old, was like 50 um, the year that I did it he did an amazing thing and or maybe it was the second year that the X I did the X helps the first year and then the second year and the third year I reported on it that guy was like 50 something Walter maybe great guy yeah and there's there was the Japanese guy and then last year Eric Reinfeld he was pushing 50 and he did really well uh, the, the, the Swede so yeah, as long yeah. as my knees can hold it together I, I, I'll, I'll keep trying it, it was God it was fun it was a pretty pretty amazing event yeah, it's a, that's a that's a pretty uh, that's a that's an athletic battle for sure. That's a that's I don't know. I couldn't handle the walking on the roads. I, I just that just was not interesting, and that it all fell apart for me pretty quickly. But the, uh, the it was a cool event. To, to, I, I sure do hope you do. I hope you fly it safely and get what you need out of it for sure, man. Yeah, yeah, no, me, yeah, me too. Well, that's that's why I'm doing all this acro training. I have a new profound respect for reserves after the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I was going to yeah, myself in all kinds of problems, but uh, but good stuff. It was all the stuff that you know I needed to be doing. So, uh, like, because like you said, I'm no Kriegel either. <laughs> well, it's good to realize that in your life, and and that was that was you were okay landing on the dirt under. Yeah, a it's quite it's quite soft out there. It's a, it's kind of like that Chelan type dirt. It's it's quite oh, soft. Yeah. Um, it's we're just outside of Zion, and pretty impressive to watch. Uh, Cody throwing, you know, infinities and misties and every he's doing everything and it's 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 pretty impressive. I'm I'm nowhere near that level, but it's it's fun to try. Yeah, he's going well, eh? It's a he's, he's, really he's a well. good pilot. Yeah, yeah, he's hmm. going really well. Hey, um, Will, just before I I, I want to be respectful of your time, I just have a 
few kind of like what I call, uh, well, what Tim Ferriss calls actually, I'm a podcast junkie, kind of like <laughs> crossover. Actually, I've got one real question for you and then just some quick ones, um, and, but you cool. don't have to answer them quick. You can answer them however you want. But I ran into a guy down at the Menarca that had a theory about, uh, he was asking me about paddling. He knew I used to be a paddler and you're a paddler. And he thought that there was a ton of crossover that he'd, he's seen paddlers get good at flying really fast. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think that's that's a good theory. And, and I remember the first time I seriously got my butt in the sky and, and there were a lot of people watching at the, at the time. And I got destroyed and like did a whole bunch of tricks and fell out of the sky for a while. And, and um, the the people on the ground are like, you know, you're, you're, that's terrible. You just did like, you know, how did you like sort that out? Weren't you really scared? And I was like, well, it was just like being underwater in my kayaks, except I could breathe. So it wasn't that bad. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's sort of true and sort of not, but it is true that if you are used to being disoriented and taking a beating, then, then the paragliding ones seem a little bit less severe. And then the way you fly a paraglider is pretty much identical to how you paddle a kayak. So big crossover there, and also in kayaking, you're often dealing with things you can't directly see. You have to feel them and, and understand and have a theory about how they work, and you know you just can't can't see what's going on with the water or the air. So you, you've got to have good models in your head of how those systems work, and then and then adapt your model to reality. But but that really crosses over. So all three of those things, I think, are uh, yeah. If a paddler says I want to get into paragliding, I'm like yeah, that'll probably work out pretty well. Mm-hmm. If a climber says I want to get into paragliding I'm like all right this may involve an uphill road you know kayaking is a very slow sport same as like alpine ski racing an alpine ski racer wants to get into paragliding yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. if you're like used to doing if you're a triathlete maybe not so much right, so right. It's, uh, I mean our brains are wired different ways depending on what we do for sports and kayaking is intensely related to paragliding for sure so I think your bud and monarca had a good point and obviously you've done really well out of out of kayaking and Nate and a lot of people have come out of those more action flow sports and done well in flying yeah cool um, if you could place me back at that time uh, a question people like to, to hear the answer to what would be your advice to your 50 hour self and where were you back then well, I was I was living in Colorado still and and flying a lot. I think at fifty hours, I don't know if I'd actually thermaled anything yet, but I was really good at hiking up hills and flying. <laughs> I don't know. I think it would be just yeah, pretty much do do what I was doing. Like you know, I basically quit my job to fly and and put a lot of time into it. And uh, and and I don't I don't know if I would do anything radically different. Maybe. I pretty much was determined to invent the sport myself and there was a large body of knowledge out there that was the craft of paragliding. It's like there's a really good instruction program now and a lot of knowledge out there that you can access. Maybe a lot more than there was when I started but there there certainly was more knowledge and, and I just didn't – I kind of went at it very experientially like I would just hurl myself into the pool over and over and eventually I'm going to swim, I'm sure. <laughs> And learning that craft is really important, like doing doing the acro courses and watching good pilots and, and learning from them and, and continually building your, your model. I think I did some of that, but I sure could have done it a lot a lot better okay. than I than I did. It just it wasn't it was, it was like sort of willful ignorance at times on my part. I was like, I just will learn this and, and I would just beat myself into a pulp doing that. And I think I probably could have learned it in less violent and dangerous ways by by listening to other pilots. But some people don't learn well that well that way. Apparently I <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, hey, I'm, we're going to finish it off here with the Proust questionnaire. I love this. Uh, this is just a whole bunch of questions. These are mostly just one word answer, but feel free to answer it however you want. Uh, what is your favorite word and what is your least favorite word? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Best answer yet. I love it. <laughs> well, hey, think about it. It's like, do you want to do this? Yes. Well, great. I mean, it, just whatever it is. Yes is always a, a good answer. <laughs> I love it. You might you might have answered these next two questions then too. What turns you on? What turns you off? Um, interesting things and and repetitive things, you know, rec- respectively for sure. Um, mm. Things that are interesting, great. Things that are repetitive, probably not going to be so good at. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Punk music. 
Ah, you're still into punk. I love it. And yeah, I uh, do. so good. <laughs> what what sound or noise do you hate? Artificial silence, like that bank vault sound. I hate that. I like silence when you're out in the mountains or whatever. That's great, but that artificial sort of deadness that that stuff drives me batshit. Or the or the drone of a like the drone of of nothingness. That's that's mm. pretty annoying. Mm, that is pretty annoying. I agree. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not. Yeah. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to do or attempt? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of them. I've thought about going back to school for geography or psychology or, or I mean, anything that's interesting out there. There's so many great things to do in life, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I mean, I, I was going to be a doctor, but then I met organic chemistry and, and that interfered with my climbing season. So that didn't work out so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was going to be a lawyer, and then I discovered you had to spend all your time inside the suit, so that that wasn't going to work either. But I, I, I don't know. I think you just have to. The coolest thing is it's is to is to create your own life. You know, it's the it's the old existentialist, those guys like Sartre and all those guys that were, um, you know, believe that you just had to create the coolest thing you could create. And and I think that your profession comes out of that, and what you do in life comes out of that. And finally, uh, if heaven exists, uh, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Heaven exists. Um, there's been a mistake. You get to go back. <laughs> Will, I love it. <laughs> good here. That was really good. Oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to ask that with anybody else from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just yeah. I don't know. I never thought of that. That's a good question. <laughs> There's been a mistake. Go back. Try again. <laughs> Do a little better this time, bud. Tough it up a bit when you need to, eh? But... <laughs> that is great. Hey, Will. Before we sign off, how can people uh, connect with you uh, if they have any questions or advice? I know you're very busy, uh, so I'm not. I'm not suggesting people just send you blind emails. So don't give them that. But um, how can people find out more about who you are and what you're up to? Well, if it, in that vein, like I learned to fly from a lot of people, so I feel I owe those people a huge debt as well as the people that. You know, from Dick Jackson and Aspen onto the guys at the Hill at Lookout, whatever. A lot of people put a lot of time into me. So I do respond to emails. As you know, it could take some time, but I do respond to them. And especially because those emails are often interesting. They're from people who are trying to figure things out, and those do get answered faster, unfortunately. So um, if you just go to willgad.com, there's a there's a uh, contact form on there, and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. And, and you know, there's Instagram and Facebook and all the rest of it, but I get pretty buried on there. And, and uh, probably just a direct email off my website would be the best. And yeah, thank you for the questions and best of luck with your your expedition. Uh, I don't know if you can talk about that one publicly or not, yeah. but yeah, that just got signed off on uh, just a few days ago. So, you know, as you know, I've been working on that with those guys over at Red Bull for a long time. So, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty exciting. We're going to head up the last week of April and put the food caches in and I've got the line all hashed out. Not, not to say that that's the line that's actually going to go down, <laughs> but in my fantasy brain, I've got it all figured it out. So, uh, right. Yeah, it's it should uh, it's exciting, man. It's all coming together. So that's kind of what where my uh, energy's energy's going right now. Well, let me know if I can do weather or whatever for you guys. I think it'll be an awesome trip, and, and wish you the best with it. Of course, I wish you were coming, man. I wish you had more time. <laughs> I would love to be doing this with you. I would too, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure I'm not capable of spending that much time uh, uh, with with unknown goals and stuff. But I'll, I'll be rooting for you guys. <laughs> Doesn't doesn't fit the ADD personality role. No, oh, no, it doesn't. And, and that's one of the things about getting older. You're like, that isn't gonna work. But I think it's super cool. So go do it. Right on, right on. Well, we'll say hi to Sarah and the kids for me and everybody. It's so good to uh, talk to you again. And uh, I'm sure our paths will cross in in better ways than just Skype one of these days. But thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, hope the listeners enjoyed that. I'm sure they did. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Likewise, go well. Take care. All right, man. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Wow, what an amazing talk. Uh, the legendary Will Gadd. Always such a pleasure to sit down with him and get his views on this sport that we love so much. 
If you enjoyed that or one of the previous episodes, as always, all we ask for is a buck a show. Uh, We are not funding this with sponsorship. We're just funding it through our listeners. I really appreciate that. Thanks for your generosity. Uh, Again, if you can put out uh, a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, I'd also be super appreciative of that. That helps us uh, reach a larger audience, of course. I realized at the end there, uh, Will and I were talking about this expedition I've got coming up, and we never actually said what it was. Uh, We were talking about the Alaska Traverse. I'm doing another big Red Bull project, kind of like the Rockies Traverse with Will, but uh, and also a new announcement. I'm doing that with Dave Turner. He's going to be my uh, my buddy on that one. It's been something I've been planning pretty intensely since 2012. So we're going to try to cross the Alaskan Range from the west to the east, starting at Lake Clark National Park, across Denali, and all the way across to the Rangels. So if you have any questions about that or anything else, uh, shoot them to me via Cloud Base Mayhem or Twitter or Facebook. I'm going to be doing this in between cast here coming up i'm going to be heading to canada here uh tomorrow i'll be gone for a week and a half but i've got some great guests lined up more shows coming your way uh, more about the alaska project have a fantastic day thanks for listening see you on the next one cheers <laughs>